Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the second part of our podcast special on Hans Holbein the Younger. In our last episode, we broke off the discussion just as Holbein returned to England in the early 1530s. We had learned that he was born in Augsburg and had learned his craft from his father, also an artist, Hans Holbein the Elder. The younger Holbein then travelled to Basel, where he got his first independent portrait commission and married before setting off across Europe via France and Antwerp under the patronage of the humanist Desiderius Erasmus. It was Erasmus's contact, Sir Thomas More, who received him in England in the late 1520s and commissioned from him two great portraits. Holbein was just starting to get famous in London when he had to return to Basel and to his family and his wife Elspeth, but the iconoclastic Protestant town was no longer an ideal place for an artist. And so, in the early 1530s, he went back to England. Today, we'll follow him into Henry VIII's court and hear how he created an image of Henry VIII that would transcend the centuries, the full-length, full-frontal picture of the king staring at the spectator, legs akimbo and with that voluminous gown. It has come to dominate how we think of Henry VIII. My guests on today's special podcast panel are Dr Susan Foister, Deputy Director and Director of Collections at the National Gallery in London, where Holbein's Ambassadors hangs, and the author of Holbein and England. Dr Jean Nicktelein, Reader in the History of Art at the University of York and author of the 2020 book Hans Holbein, The Artist in a Changing World, and Franny Moyle, the author of The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein, published this year. And the question I have posed is that when Holbein returned to London, he found that all his patrons had died or lost their positions. So Susan, what did he do? Well, I think he very quickly had to find some new contacts and he was immediately very successful in getting Thomas Cromwell interested in his work. This was something that obviously benefited him enormously and I think probably also provided some protection for him as he worked at court over the next decade. I mean, obviously, Holbein survived in a way that Cromwell didn't. Cromwell fell and Holbein carried on working. But I think to get Cromwell as a patron must have been absolutely key to his success. 
And of course, he had already been working for Henry VIII at Greenwich. And so he immediately clearly made his services available again to the king. Now, I think, as you said early on, we don't actually have the records of Holbein being paid by Henry early on in this return visit to England. They simply don't survive those accounts. But I think there must have been payments to him earlier for making all kinds of work, including Goldsmith's work that is connected with Anne Boleyn becoming queen and her coronation in 1533. So Holbein was very quickly right back at the centre of things. And as you've mentioned, one of his portraits from this period is of that rising star Thomas Cromwell. Franny, I thought what you had to say about this was very interesting. What do you make of this portrait? Well, I find this really quite a puzzle because when you compare the wonderful portrait that Holbein does of Thomas More with its depth and generosity and you then look at the portrait he delivers of Thomas Cromwell, they're almost by a different person. The portrait of Thomas Cromwell is in many ways very two-dimensional because he is placed against a flat background. You know, he doesn't have this rich green curtain that Moore has sort of rippling behind him. In fact, there's a sort of piece of damask cloth which has sort of been stretched and it's been stretched so tight you can see it sort of pinned at the sides and the fabric is actually so taut that it's sort of pulling against the pins and you find these strong horizontals you know the horizontal of the table on which Cromwell leans and it gives a very austere sort of shallow aspect to the work it says sort of economy and I wondered if that might be some sort of covert commentary on Cromwell. Of course, one's own personality is one's own commentary on oneself. So it may well have been that that's exactly what Cromwell's house was like because he was a man of economy and he did stretch his damask rather thin and he did sit at a plain table. And certainly we've talked earlier of noses being altered in portraits to improve the sitter. It would be hard to imagine that Holbein altered anything in that painting to improve the sitter because you do see a very sort of piggy-faced, small-eyed man. I have to say the miniature he delivered at around the same time feels much more sympathetic, actually, towards Mm. Cromwell, interestingly. And that seems to be delivered with a little more sympathy. Susan, I know that you were part of a panel, is it 2007, that was determining the authorship of that painting because it looks quite so different to the Moore one. Do you have any comments you want to make on Cromwell? I think the only thing to say, I mean, having looked at the painting very closely under sort of you know, lab conditions, is that it has suffered a bit And I think particularly it's actually suffered in that profile around the nose. And that's where it is most damaged, you know, just in terms of its condition. It's not in quite such good condition as some other portraits by Holbein. So one just needs to take that a little bit into account. Mm. So Holbein's left Basel in the middle of a Protestant revolution. He's joined England in the midst of the break with Rome. And that reminds us of a point that really comes out in your book, Jean, which is about the extent to which Holbein is living in this world of profound transformation. We've talked about scientific ideas, changes in religion, social structures, literacy, education, 
Do we know anything about what he made of this? I suppose specifically I'm interested in, do we know anything about his faith? We have very little sense of what his personal faith was, and that in itself might tell us something. So the one thing that we do know specifically about his faith is that after the city of Basel officially converted to Protestantism in 1529, about a year after that, the government installed officials who went around all the guild members inquiring as to who was not attending the new religious services and asking why. And they wrote all of these down. So we have these remarkable records of people who say, oh, I haven't been attending the new services, but now I will, now that you've asked me. Or I haven't been attending them because I actually believe in a slightly more extreme version of Protestantism and I don't quite agree with this one, etc., etc. And so Holbein was among those people who were interviewed. So he hadn't been attending the new Protestant services. And he said, as his reason, was that he needed the new concept of the Eucharist better explained. So the idea of what the Eucharist meant. So the Eucharist is this moment in the traditional mass where the priest raises the bread and the wine and they supposedly kind of turn into, in a literal sense, they turn into the body and blood of Christ. And... Luther himself kind of accepted this interpretation that he still believed that the body and blood were there, but in combination with the actual kind of bread and the wine. And then you had the more extreme Protestants who believed that actually this is just a kind of commemorative ritual. And so Holbein seems to be saying, well, I'm not really quite sure where I stand, you know, on these interpretations. And I think it's important just to say that although this sounds like a really abstract, esoteric thing about what do you believe about Christ becoming literally present on the altar. That also relates to other ideas about do you believe that divine power comes into the world in a literal sense? So those theological ideas about the Eucharist also connect to the way that people think about images and the way they think about ritual and so on. So Holbein is on this list, but then his name has been crossed out. And then he's on another list of people who, well, they hadn't been going, but now they are going to the new religious services. Now, does that mean that he actually converted? Or does that mean that he was like, well, I really would like to get some commissions from the city government and therefore I'll go along with what they're asking me to do? We don't actually know that. So I think what we do know is that he didn't have a strong enough opinion one way or the other to give us a record of I'm definitely a committed Catholic or... I don't have definitely switched over to the new side. And I think we also get the sense when we look at his work professionally that throughout his career, I mean, he's coming into maturity as an artist precisely at the moment that the Reformation is erupting. So he has to make decisions quite early on about who he's going to work for and what kind of works he's going to produce. And he creates work that is kind of very traditional in its religion. He also creates work which expresses a more kind of radical or questioning. I think we could see the dead Christ in that way, for instance. And so he seems to be someone who's happy to adapt and to produce what is asked of him. And therefore, we really don't know what he personally thought. That's really fascinating. I suppose he could also have felt that the answer they gave him was sufficiently in line with his thinking or that he could continue to have a kind of Lutheran idea of the real presence of Christ in those elements and perhaps didn't go along with the more Protestant memorialist position who knows in which case he would have found a very comfortable place in England because it was illegal in Henry VIII's England to believe anything apart from (laughs) that Christ's body and blood were present in the bread and the wine but on the other hand he's working for Cromwell who's a reformer anyway so the mystery continues but Franny you contemplate the fact that one of the people that we don't have an agreed surviving image from is a person who is causing reformation change in England which is Anne Boleyn but 
Do you think that one must have existed? One can't be definitive about that. I think it seems highly likely to me that Holbein would have drawn and painted Berlin. For a start, in all the collections of his drawings of women, there is her entire entourage, members of her family, her ladies-in-waiting, her best friends. You know, why she as the sort of style-setter supreme would not have also been drawn, or in fact seems almost unbelievable to me. I'm sure she would have been. Of course, having said that, there are a couple of drawings that in the past people have considered are of Anne. One is held in the British Museum, the other in the Royal Collection. Unhelpfully, they don't look very much like one another. They don't look particularly like the same person. There's some similarity in the lips. So it's a bit of a mystery as to whether those are drawings whether one or both of them are drawings of Anne Boleyn. What there is, of course, is a much later copy of an original of Anne Boleyn by a later artist, a later 16th century artist. The National Portrait Gallery has on it, as does Eva Carlson, it's this famous portrait of Boleyn carrying the bee around her neck with the sort of pearls. And my speculation, and it can honestly be nothing more than this, is that it would make sense to me that in 1532, when Anne was made the Marquess of Pembroke, and this was a great honour for Anne Boleyn and the Boleyn family, this would seem a very appropriate moment for Anne to commission a painting of herself. And it would be an appropriate moment for her to wear a bee round her neck rather than something that was more significant of her as a queen. This seems to belong to a slightly earlier moment before she was queen. The other thing I would say about that copy is that in 1532, when Holbein was doing these steelyard portraits, there's a particular aspect. It's like he gets into a sort of groove of drawing members of the steelyard with a particular expression, with a particular glance of the eye, which is looking straight at the viewer, but sort of slightly out of the side of the eye. And that, again, is also consistent with this copy of the Berlin portrait. She has that particular attitude. Now... This is the most circumstantial evidence that one couldn't really say stacks up to a proper argument. But we do know that he was involved in other commissions for her. He designed a cup she gave Henry VIII. He worked on a design for a cradle for, if not Elizabeth, one of the other pregnancies. He designed jewellery, which has the A and the H entwined. He was very much there. I find it hard to believe that he didn't paint Anne. But of course, what clearly happened was when Anne was disgraced and executed, everything that people could get their hands on, you know, in terms of imagery of her, was rather quickly painted over, thrown on the bonfire, ripped up. No one wanted to be associated with the disgraced Queen. And so images of her at all actually now are incredibly rare. And they must have been commonplace beforehand. I mean, it is astonishing how efficient Henry was in wiping out all sort of memorabilia of Anne. I like your 1532 speculation because it's also in that year that we know that Henry passed over much of the royal jewellery from Catherine to Anne. So it must have been before that one would have thought that she would be sporting the Bee Boleyn. But 
what we do know is that he becomes the king's painter and 1536-37 he paints Henry and then creates this extraordinary new full-size image of Henry. Susan, can you tell us please about the Whitehall mural and why it was so novel? We're told that visitors were absolutely amazed and overwhelmed by seeing this huge image of Henry. I mentioned the ambassadors, which Holbein painted in 1533. He rather cleverly adapts that composition for this wall painting of Henry VIII and his father, Henry VII, and their wives, Jane Seymour and Elizabeth of York. So it's a dynastic painting of the Tudors. And I said that in the ambassadors, Jean de Dampfield on the left is a really bulky figure. Well, Henry VIII far, far outdoes Jean de Dampfield in terms of bulk. He is absolutely enormous. He looks tall, but he is also extremely wide. So you can quite imagine that people must have been very startled to meet with this painted image of the king who looks absolutely directly at him. One of the interesting things is the change that Holbein made between the full-size drawing or cartoon for which half now survives in the National Portrait Gallery. It's actually on show at the National Gallery at the moment. That gives you a pretty good idea of the scale and the grandeur of this image of Henry VIII that inspired so many other images coming afterwards. But in that cartoon, in that drawing, you see Henry in three-quarter face. He's looking to the side. But in the copies of the finished painting, he's looking straight at you. And so that was a very last minute change, it seems, but one that really made that image of Henry that we know today. It must have been absolutely extraordinary. And then the portraits were surrounded by Renaissance architecture of the most elaborate kind. Maybe it reflected the room in Whitehall Palace. Maybe it was an aspiration for something that was even more magnificent that Henry would have liked to have seen. And then in the centre of the composition, in that place where the shelves of instruments stands in the ambassadors, you have this block with an inscription in Latin, which asks you to decide which is the greater king. Is it Henry VII, who laid the foundations of the Tudor dynasty, or is it Henry VIII, who overturned the altars in the country. So this allusion to the break with Rome that Henry had undertaken in order to marry Anne. But of course, she's completely out of the picture now. It's Jane Seymour, the third wife that you see represented here. And we also have a wonderful portrait of Jane Seymour. Jean, can you tell me what you make of the portrait of Jane? Oh, this is such an amazing painting. So it's got a very, very striking design. So it's got the blue background that you have very commonly in Holbein's portraits. She herself, her skin is very pale, and that seems to have been a deliberate decision. There's just little touches of pink, but very, very pale. And then she's wearing the most vivid red velvet dress. And then she also has um, undergarments with white and silver and also gold is kind of woven into a kind of shawl that she's wearing. And then she also has this amazing jewellery with, again, gold and pearls and so on. So you have this very striking attention to detail within that painting. So it's very, very vividly rendered. All the materials are rendered, the textures and so on. 
But at the same time, there's something about it. And I should say also that she's standing in a very kind of formal pose, that she's sort of holding her arms in front of her and she looks very kind of studied and her lips are kind of tightly pressed together and she's just sort of like looking off to the side. And she looks sort of both demure and commanding at the same time, if that's kind of possible to do. And one of the things that really strikes me about this work, and I think is also true of Holbein's other royal portraits, is that there's a really subtle combination of great naturalism and attention to detail. And yet there's also something just slightly abstracted about it. So it doesn't quite have that kind of fleshly embodiment that you sense with most of his other portraits. It's almost like she's been kind of put through a kind of slight abstraction filter. And I think that what he's trying to give you a sense of is this amazing skill that he has and the importance of the materials that she can afford to wear and so on. And yet she's being shown as someone who's just slightly above and beyond the ordinary everyday world. And it's really a remarkable combination. Ah, so you're suggesting that in this kind of abstraction, which makes her somehow more ethereal, that she is elevated beyond the common measure just by that sort of approach. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that also in his other royal portraits. At least I see that in his other royal portraits. And it's almost as if it's kind of setting the stage for what you see in later Tudor portraiture, where portraits become very kind of patterned and flat and very elaborate, but they don't have quite that same realism. And it's almost as if he's kind of setting the tone of here is how you can depict a figure that makes them slightly greater than they would if they just walked into the room. Mm. Franny, what do you think? I think that's a really fascinating observation and it's one that I hadn't really made myself of Jane but I can see it now that Jean's talking about it. What I think is interesting about this moment when Holbein is painting the Whitehall mural and these images of Henry is it is a moment when newly the king is also the head of the Church of England and so there is in my view an intention in that great Whitehall painting and in the subsequent copies that we see that were placed in all the great houses, you know, in England that begin to emerge based on it, to depict almost like a god on earth, a sort of colossus, a classical god, an atlas, all these sort of resonances are there. And I think also, you see, he begins to make other allusions in royal portraits to Christian imagery. We are getting proper sort of iconography in a way. He is creating icons, I suppose. And when Holbein paints Henry's son, the young Prince Edward, as a baby, in fact, it's a very formal portrait where this child has far more poise than any 18-month-old child possibly could have. But also, it is slightly reminiscent of the Salvador Mundi, that Holbein would have seen that Leonardo da Vinci painted and was in Francis I's collection. It has a number of references to religious iconography. And therefore, Jean, I think, perhaps is right. There is something a little idealised, perhaps, in the Seymour portrait, because these are, in a way, not just the royal family. They're not quite the holy family, but they have to embody some sort of new spiritual authority for the common man. Although he does show her slightly weak chin. And her slightly squinty eyes. I mean, her eyes are a bit odd. And she's not pretty, is she? Not that she needs to be. But she's not idealised as a beauty. It's a different sort of idealisation. 
Susan, what do you think? I was going to agree that what Holbein does, I think, with women in this period is very extraordinary, which is not to idealise them in the way that most other artists of the time do. I think with men, it's quite normal to show them, you know, with their stubble, with their grey hairs, with their imperfections. But women are normally put onto a much blander plane, if you like. And I think Holbein doesn't do that. He shows women much more as they were. And I think that that's what makes him the reliable witness that Henry VIII wanted when he was thinking of who was next in line to become wife, which is perhaps what you were going to come on to. But he can do it more kindly or less kindly, can't he? Franny, you compared in your book his treatment of Lady Rich and Lady Guildford, who are both quite plump, but one looks nice and one doesn't at all. Well, you know, this is just my commentary. But what I love about the Lady Rich portrait... Holbein does rarely, I think, express his opinion of his patrons. I mean, it would be far too dangerous for him to express a personal opinion. But of course, Richard Rich was known to be vile and had basically Thomas More killed effectively with what most people consider some sort of false testimony. And at around that time, shortly after More's execution, Holbein gets the commission to paint the newly wedded Lord and Lady Rich. And Lady Rich is an ample, older, slightly older lady. And she has this mole on her chin with a frizzy hair growing out of it. And I'm afraid I became quite fascinated in the drawing, the way that Holbein had really quite firmly drawn that hair. I mean, he didn't have to, but that line was really quite firm. The finished portrait no longer exists, but copies of it do. And the mole and hair have gone in the finished portrait part of me, just in my own imaginative, responsive work, likes to think that that is his own personal little niggle at Lady Rich. But as I say, that's just my own imagination taking off. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this a perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. And this talk about the beauty of how he depicts women or otherwise, the verisimilitude, the realism, of course, brings us to Anne of Cleves. In terms of Holbein's story, he's briefly returned to Basel, who's now a man of wealth. He appears dressed in silk and velvet, sees his wife and children for the first time in years. He's given permission by the authorities to go back and stay with the King of England and gets home and find that Jane Seymour's given birth to a son. And soon... Henry's on the search for another wife. What should we make of his portrait of Anne of Cleves? Franny, what do you think? There's quite a backstory to the portrait. First of all, I think it's worth mentioning that this was not the only portrait that Holbein did of a potential bride. I mean, he had spent vast swathes of 1538 going back and forth across Europe, drawing French noble women, drawing and then painting. Christina of Denmark, who was a recently widowed niece of Charles V. And he had responded well to a number of portraits, but particularly to Christina of Denmark, who he really loved the portrait of her and actually got a full-scale painting commissioned of her. But the marriage negotiations with all these potential women who were out there faltered. And so by 1539, he'd already had a year of looking and was beginning to get very frustrated, falling in love with a picture, and then the bride was not forthcoming for political reasons. So Anne of Cleves was proposed, and he was very impatient, and he really, really wanted to see her quickly. And some paintings by another artist were on their way, but they didn't arrive, and so Holbein was sent. Now, the problem that the English ambassadors were having with Cleves is Henry and Cromwell were asking, what does she look like? Can you give us a good description? And their answer was coming back, well, not really. She's very hard to see. She's got a big veil. Actually, we only saw her from afar. I couldn't get a proper glimpse. So this added to this terrible frustration. Paintings not arriving, diplomats not being able to get a proper sight or a proper account of Anne. And when Holbein does get over, finally in 1539, he does get an audience with her. He paints her full face, straight on, which is a very sort of unusual compositional format, really, for a portrait painting. Part of me wonders whether it is almost a comment on all the shenanigans in actually getting a sight of, and, you know, it's almost like him saying, right, here she is, full on, I finally managed to see her up close. And part of me wonders whether that is why she is painted in that way. But again, to refer to the points we made earlier about the burden of leading a Church of England, 
that this next wife or being the family that spiritually is to lead the newly formed Church of England, this burden that is about to befall on this fourth wife. There is something of Marianne imagery in that painting. It has been observed that this kind of serene, fully frontal depiction of a woman is one that one often associates with the Virgin Mary. And so whether there is an element of rehearsing in that painting her suitability to be this mother figure for the young prince, to be suitably composed, to be part of this family and its responsibilities, I think that may be at play as well. Jean, what do you make of this? Well, Susan was talking earlier about the fact that Holbein doesn't idealise his women and that they seem like real human beings. I have to say, for me, the Anacles is one of the very few paintings that doesn't quite look like a real woman. Her face is very symmetrical. There's something kind of not quite lifelike about it in the same way as his other works. And I wonder whether there was almost a very subtle way in which he was trying to kind of say you know, I'm not really quite giving you exactly the full picture of this woman, because you can imagine what a difficult position he's in. He's making this portrait in front of her and her family. So he has to make something that looks presentable from their point of view. But then he also has to communicate something about her to Henry back at home. And I just one final thing I want to also say is that I mean, I don't know how different her face actually was in person from the face that we see in the painting. But it's clear that when Henry reacted really negatively towards her, there was just something about her as a person that he just did not sync with. Was that the face? Was it the body? Was it the fact that she wasn't sophisticated enough? When we look back at the Jane Seymour painting, you know, we've said, well, she's not pretty, but he was very attracted to Jane Seymour. So I think in all these kind of diplomatic problems with these portraits, we kind of get something of that sense of the difference between a likeness and a sense of embodiment. Yes, it's the difference between seeing each other on Zoom and in the flesh. Susan, what do you think? I agree with most of what Jean was saying, actually. But I just did want to comment on the headdress problem. Two versions of portraits of Anne of Cleves, which remarkably survived to us. There's a full-scale one in the loop. But the more interesting one to me is the little miniature in the Victoria and Albert Museum in this ivory Tudor rose case, which was presumably made so that Henry could slip it into his pocket and take it out and look at it from time to time, thinking of this marriage, finally perhaps was going to succeed. But in that miniature, which is painted with very expensive pigments, ultramarine of gold, what Holbein does is to reduce the extent of the headdress very considerably from the full portrait. And we know from the ambassador's reports that they found these headdresses that the women wore in Duran in Cleves extremely ugly mm. and obstructed their faces. So what Holbein has done is to just reduce this headdress. And I think perhaps it was a terrible shock for Henry, possibly among other aspects of Anne and her behaviour and her appearance and the fact that I think he didn't speak any English. Suddenly he was confronted with this monstrous headdress. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. As she progressed from Cleves to England, Gradually, these accounts do come back about how strange she looks and the women that she's brought with her, her entourage. And the French ambassador 
who's well-travelled, says, you know, they do look odd. And I think in a society where one's costume speaks so fully of one's status, of what one wanted to say about oneself, to see a very alien costume that was to an English eye even ugly, that could imprint, if you like, and one could mistake that for transmitting something about the person wearing it. I also think one has to remember about how much did the real Anne look like that painting. One does have to remember there was a sort of massive inquiry after the marriage was annulled and Cromwell had his head chopped off. And the sort of broad conclusion, if one takes all the accounts together, was Henry blamed the ambassador's words. He blamed the accounts, the, the sort of written accounts and what he was told. He never blamed the painting or Holbein. And also, I think interestingly, everything that Cromwell was accused of, and of course he wasn't accused of messing up the marriage, but in fact we all know he was being punished for that, but he was really accused because of his evangelical material and his beliefs. Now, Holbein was working very closely with Cromwell at that moment on that material. So if Henry had really, really wanted to punish Holbein, I think he could have been held up for being the wrong kind of nonconformist, just like Cromwell was. And again, he wasn't. I think he might have got a bit of a cold shoulder for some time, but that's better than the alternative. So I suspect that that portrait was pretty accurate. My point of view is that Cromwell was not punished for getting Henry into the marriage, but not getting him out of it. But anyway, in these last few years of Holbein's work, we've touched on the miniature of Anne of Cleves and this large-scale painting, and that is characteristic, I suppose, of Holbein's work. We've got, the in the last years, the miniatures of Charles Brandon and Henry Brandon, these two young boys, and especially touching because we know from his will that Holbein had, by this point, two young children in London with a mother whose identity we don't know. On the other hand, we've got him doing Henry and the barber surgeons. Jean, do you want to tell us a bit about this last phase of Holbein's work and this extraordinary range in terms of scale? Yeah, it's very striking that we don't have evidence of any further kind of major royal commissions, but he is still doing all kinds of work and on very different scales. He's still designing metalwork and so on for the court. So so he's someone who's still, I think, kind of at the peak of his work. We see portraiture that he does of major figures as well as more average people. We have that absolutely massive painting that was done for the Barber Surgeons Company, which seems to have been probably interrupted by his death. The final version that we have seems to be partly Holbein's work and partly the work of others, even before it was damaged and repainted at a later time. He's also making these wonderful tiny miniatures. So he's working on different scales. He's working with different materials. And I think, of course, it's important that we know that these were his last years. But he was only about 45 when he died, and he seems to have died very suddenly of an illness. So from his point of view, he would have still been, you know, in the middle of his prime and working really at the highest level when all of a sudden he seems to have gotten ill. It's such a kind of terrible loss, you know, that that he didn't live longer because he was still really at the absolute peak. Absolutely. So 
You've taken us to his death. We know that on the 7th of October 1543, John Holbein, which is the English version of his name, servant to the King's Majesty, made his will, left money for the keeping of two children which are at nurse, which suggests a possible premonition that he would die. And indeed he did in that year, probably of the plague that was so prevalent at the time. I suppose it would be nice to conclude by thinking about a couple of things. One, what's so tempting when one is thinking of a character of this period, somebody who saw so much of the court and knew these people, it's tempting to read him into the pictures, especially because he left so very few personal documents. It's hard to get at his interiority, you know, his identity as a human being, his personality. Do you think we can tell what he thought or should we conclude he was too good an artist to let us in on that? Yeah, I find him incredibly difficult to pin down. For me, that's actually one of the things that's most kind of attractive and exciting about him. And part of this has to do with the vagaries of historical fortune, that he must have written letters and received letters, but we don't have any of them. So all of the textual documents that we have about him The ones that survive, the vast majority are just records and notations and very, very brief things. We get very, very little narrative discourse within his own lifetime about him. So to that extent, we're missing the historical documentation that would give us a bit more of a sense of him. But also his works themselves, they really match that quality in that on the one hand, they seem to kind of give you this very full very detailed, very vivid picture. And yet there's something very reticent about them. You feel like you can't quite kind of get your head around exactly who these people are. Like they're presenting themselves to you and yet they're kind of holding themselves back. And I think that quality runs throughout his work. So it's kind of tempting maybe to see him as being like that, but whether he was or not, we can only speculate. What I find really fascinating about his work is the degree of ambiguity one can find in it looking back from the perspective of the future. And was that built into it? Or is that just because his eye was so good that he could really capture the truth with all its ambiguities? And what I mean by that is, for example, I look at that portrait of Henry and I think Henry's a monster. And so I see a sort of puffed up balloon-faced impotent guy and I can see all that in that painting but of course Holbein would not have dared suggest that overtly to a king who wanted to see himself as a magnificent figure posing as a colossus and yet everything is there and I think everything is there because that is the truth you know Henry was a sort of degenerating overweight ill, impotent man, nevertheless posing as a colossus. And I feel I'm not explaining myself well enough, but I think his brilliance, and this perhaps isn't really answering your question, but the brilliance of his perception and its nuance is so great that those ambiguities are there and have persisted and have allowed people to see all sorts Mm. of things in those characters. The other thing I would say is Holbein, of course, did depend and encourage interaction from his viewers. So I feel, to some extent, justified in allowing my own imaginative response to the paintings. But particularly when one looks at some of them in the flesh, 
I do get a sense of sometimes tenderness, sometimes lack of tenderness. It's very hard to explain why, how that is achieved, but particularly in his portrait of his wife, which is in Basel, which in reproduction looks rather melancholy and dour. Actually, in the flesh, it is painted with such wonderful finesse and empathy. You do feel, I think, something of the artist's relationship with the sitter. But the past was a very different place, and I think it is very hard to get a real detailed handle on him. Susan? I agree with much of what's been said. I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the extraordinary skill Holbein has as an artist of conveying likeness, of conveying things that look natural and coming back to the ambassadors. I mean, that's what people are sighing over when they see how he's depicted a wood grain, a piece of satin, a piece of fur that looks as though you could reach out and touch it. And yet I think Jean is right when she says there's this quality so often more in some images than perhaps in others, as Franny was suggesting, but there's this sense of him withholding something from you. And I think that's what reminds you that he's always in control. And when you look into many, many of these paintings, these images, there's a lot of naturalism. It's very, very convincing. But there's also a lot that's actually distorted and that Holbein is deliberately creating. It comes into a lot of those compositions we've talked about as well as the portraits. And I think that's where you get the sense that the artist is always there and he's reminding us that Holbein made these wonderful paintings. Thank you. Well, let's end there with this sense of his genius and his mystery. Thank you so much to all of you for coming onto this panel. You were absolutely fantastic. And to our listener, now you need to go and add to your basket Hans Holbein, the artist in a changing world. That's Jean's book, Franny's book, The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein and Susan's Holbein and England, because I'm sure that this conversation has started all sorts of thoughts and questions. And you've also got to see the beautiful paintings, of course. So short of going everywhere yourself, you need to buy those books. Thank you all of you so very much. Before we finish, thank you so much for your support. We're just about to hit 1 million downloads since launching five months ago. I couldn't do it without you. I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to Not Just the Tudors and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. 
In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.